0: So, I'm moving our return to the Exodus series one more week. And what we're going to do is is talk today about a a passage and a topic that uh, continually has been weighing on my heart. um, For, you know, in general and specifically for this church. Uh, If you think about the Christian life, what it's supposed to be. And really where we are sometimes. Maybe it's not exactly what we thought it was supposed to be. Or we have this sort of um, duality going on. You know, some of us at the men's breakfast, we heard about this and talked about this. This sort of church life and then the everything else life. Right? There's the stuff that's churchy and then there's everything else. It's compartmentalized life. There's the Sunday life, the Sunday morning life, and there's the rest of my life. And, man, maybe there's some of you in here this morning, and and that's just eating you up already. That's eating you up already. Paul writes to Timothy about pastoring the church in Ephesus. And this letter he writes to Timothy just, it's for Timothy, all right? He wants to prepare Timothy to be a good pastor and to pastor people well. And he warns Timothy, there's going to be a lot of people that are really into church, and they're going to show up, and they're going to attend church. They're going to be really involved in stuff. But, but they're going to have difficulties. They're going to have certain difficulties that they can't get over. Some people just can't get over the fact that they love pleasure. They love pleasure. Everybody loves pleasure, but a lover of pleasure, that defines you? That means you can do your Sunday thing, but something out there, that's your number one pleasure out there, and you return to it, and you fall into it over and over It might be money that you love. You're so focused on your career. You're not trying to cheat people. You're not trying to be a crook. But but you're so focused on your career and career advancement and what the next step is that there's hardly any room for God in the rest of your life, just Sunday. Maybe you kind of have a brutal personality. And you just chalked it up to, hey, look. (laughs) You chalked it up to your ethnicity, your family, your heritage, your dad your upbringing, hard times in life. But he's just kind of a brutal person. Does that change? When he writes Timothy, he warns Timothy about these kind of people that are churchy people, but there's no power for change in their lives. And he's telling Timothy, there's one way, there's only one way that'll keep you, a from becoming that kind of person, because a pastor can easily become that kind of person. And B, there's only one way for you to keep your flock from becoming those kind of people. So to look at that, we're going to be in uh, First Timothy, Second Timothy, I'm sorry, Second Timothy, chapter 3. And I know I put in your bulletins, we're going to start in verse 10, but I think for the sake of what I just explained, we should start back up at verse 1. If you need a Bible, you can slip your hand up and we'll make sure someone gets you one. We have a stack of them in the back there. If you don't own a Bible, please let us know on your way out this morning and we'll make sure you go home with one. Second Timothy chapter 3, look at verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. What kind of difficulty? Difficulty like it's a lot of storms and rumors of wars? No, not that kind. Difficult people. Verse 2, For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, catch this having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Can we just pause there a second? When you read that list, does anything in that list appear godly to you? Treacherous? Unappeasable? You ever meet somebody? You just can't appease them. They, they, they will not be satisfied. No matter what you do, no matter how you say it, no matter what you produce. They'll find some ugly thing about it. They they cannot be reasoned with. They cannot be appeased. You ever meet someone like that? He's saying you can meet someone like that and they seem godly until you really get to know them. Reckless. We kind of write that off, right? Well, he's not evil. He's not mean. He's just a little reckless. Slanderous. How someone talks about someone else. How many people are afraid to come to church because what people are going to say about them? We're still trying to live that down. Abusive, disobedient to their parents, uh, ungrateful, just ungrateful. So these are things that you're des- he's describing them, and in your mind you're thinking of the worst people you can imagine, people that just they're just seething with this nasty stuff. And then he says, In verse 5, these people have an appearance of godliness. Yikes. That means they're not outwardly brutal. They're not outwardly treacherous. They don't tell you, I love money. They don't tell you that. It's after a while of getting to know them, you realize, hmm, they go to church and stuff, but there's something else there that's defeating them, that's keeping them, from true godliness and keeping them from power. And they may have shown up to church initially to try to get power for change, but they never got power for change. All they got was an outside, exterior form of godliness. What has become Christianity for them has become a facade. But on the inside, there's no power for change. That's what's difficult about it. So he says in verse... Five, they have appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. I've met a few of those. They're quoting verses at me. Pastor, did you know this? They're correcting my sermons on Sundays. Oh, don't you forgot this part forget that. And then you get to know them. And it's exactly what he's talking about here. I love sermon feedback, by the way. I love sermon feedback. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about someone who's always learning, always has some verse to quote, always has some uh, passage to, that they memorize from some book that they read, always wanting to quiz everybody around them to see if they're up to par with their knowledge. They're always learning, but they're never able to arrive at knowledge. That's interesting. Always learning but don't know nothing. They don't know the truth. He says, Just as Janice and Jambres opposed Moses, so those men, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was, those, as was that of those two men. You can't play that game real long of acting godly, but really having no power in your life. That that game doesn't last long. And so he tells Timothy, look, there's these kinds of people. They need to be changed. They need these things to be conquered in their lives. They need hope, but they're taking hope in the wrong thing. What's ironic is that they're doing church, and they're even learning stuff, verse 7. They're learning things, but it's not translating into life change for them. So he said, There's a difference with you though, Timothy. I'm encouraged by you, Timothy. You're not like that. Why is Timothy not like that? Because he's so smart? No, no, no. Here's the contrast. Here's what those people are like. Here's what Timothy is like. Verse 10. You, however, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So the contrast he's setting up is, Difference between you, Timothy, and these people who are always learning but never know anything, always reading but never get truth out of it, always studying but never arrive to the truth, always building up the form of godliness but never accessing power ever. The difference between them and you, Timothy, is that you say, forget teaching. No, he doesn't say that because he says in verse 10, you followed my teaching. So teaching is important. Studying is important. What's the difference? He followed it. it. says in verse 10, You, however, followed my teaching and my conduct and my aim in life, my faith, my patience. See, all the things that teaching should produce in you, you're following that in me. You're allowing the head knowledge to become heart knowledge and go out through your hands and feet. Right? That's life change. And that doesn't happen without teaching. See, we don't ignore teaching. It happens through teaching. When it becomes a part of our everyday lives, then he does the contrast again in verse fourteen. You're not like that, he says. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. He's not trying to push Timothy away from learning. See the problem with these other guys—they're always learning and they never know anything. So forget learning; just feel, feel your way the Christian life. That's not what he tells Timothy. He says you need to learn. You need to know the teaching and follow it and firmly believe it. And when you firmly believe it, then your life won't look like that list that I just put in the above paragraph. You won't be a lover of pleasure. You'll be a lover of God because you're following the teaching that's there. You're not absorbing it just for the sake of knowledge, for the sake of quoting it to people. you are looking knowledgeable or looking godly. You're doing it because you want to be. And so you... You're going to have to continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. You can't continue in what you haven't learned. You cannot continue in what you haven't learned. Learning is important. You know the word disciple means learner? Disciple means learner. So he wants Timothy to embrace teaching and embrace learning. But the difference between him and these other people that try to learn but don't get it is that he lives it out. That it turns into a godly life verse 12. He desires to live a godly life. Yes, he's going to get persecuted for it. But you're going to go from good to better while the imposters 13 go from bad to worse continuing in their deceit thinking that churchiness is godliness when it's not and so when he makes this contrast he's telling Timothy the reason why you're not like those people Timothy is because you follow the bible where do you get bible from he didn't say that he said teaching he said learning well, he gets to it now in verse fifteen. It says, From childhood you've been acquainted. Well, back up to fourteen. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. There it is. That's the Bible. What does the Bible do for you? The sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Scripture is able to make you wise for salvation. We're fools. We don't know about salvation. We don't know what to do. We don't know how to change our lives. We don't know how to get power. We don't know how to be godly. But Scripture gives us what we need to have the wisdom to not operate in that foolishness, but instead operate in the wisdom of God and do it the way God wants us us to do it scripture does that the bible does that in your life so the difference between timothy and those reckless conceited folks in the first paragraph indeed the difference between us and anyone in that the description in that first paragraph is not how good we are or how holy we are it's it's what god is doing in our lives by using the sacred writings to make us wise for salvation through Christ. Our problem is that we see that verse and we go, okay, Scripture is good to get me saved, right? It's wise for salvation, but what about everything else in my life? And what I want to tell you this morning is, that's bad theology. If salvation to you is just saved, a prayer so you can be saved okay heaven you know i'm in now what about the rest of my life that has nothing to do with salvation that's not the biblical description of what salvation is salvation is your life you don't just check that box oh i'm saved i'm in that's my ticket to heaven and then everything else is irrelevant everything else is relevant everything else is your journey and salvation is one long journey it's not just whether you're in or out it's not just whether you're going to be accepted to heaven or not starts with conversion, but there's a sanctification process, isn't there? There's a time of growth and a time of learning and a time of maturing in Christ, conforming to Christ, and pulling away from that past world growth. All of that is salvation. So Paul is not saying the Bible is good to get you saved. Everything else, I'm sorry, go to the library. He's saying the Bible is good for all of salvation. All of what you need to grow in Christ It's right here. Just in case it's thought someone here maybe thinks, well, that's inserting a lot into one line, he keeps emphasizing this fact. You've been acquainted with the sacred writings, and those sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, For Correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. A couple things I want to point out that are really important. If you highlight your Bibles or you underline it, and this verse isn't already super marked up, now's the time to mark it up. If you mark your Bibles, verse 16, all scripture. All of it. Not your favorite parts, not the cool parts. Some of us, I like the stories. I love the parables. Oh, I love the Psalms. Oh, I, I i like the Proverbs. We're glad you like those. We need to access all of it. All of it is there for a reason. And all of it is there to profit you. All of it's there to render a profit in your life. You, you study it by faith. That's key in verse 15. It's able to make you wise. For salvation through faith, you have to believe it. I mean, if you, if you don't believe that these, these are God's words, then yeah, it's just, it's just, I'm just a dude standing up here with an ancient book. It could be Homer. It could be Plato, right? And we're just talking about some ancient truths that are like, yeah, that's a good encouragement for life. Let me try to live that life. This, this is not a motivational speech. It's only transformational if you understand that these are God's words. That's why he says that all Scripture is what? (sighs) Breathed out by God. These are God's words. these, These aren't man's opinion. This isn't a collection of fortune cookie papers. Right? These are God's words. It's not a textbook that some professor wrote with a bunch of degrees next to his name. Way better than that. These are God's words, and they're intended to profit you. They're intended to help you not be like these people at the top of the chapter. Nobody wants to be like that. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, man, I want to be treacherous. You know? I want to be a brutal type of person. No, these are traps. These are This is deception. But the only way to be freed from that and not live a life like that it's not just going to church. It's not just being godly. Those things are important. But the way to actually be godly is through the power that is offered to us through Scripture, through applying faith to what we find in Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God. It's His Word, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Right? There's four ways that it profits you. Sometimes it's going to teach you. Sometimes it's going to reprove you. Don't do that. Stop doing that. Sometimes it's going to correct you. Oh, I know you didn't mean that. That's wrong, though. This is correct. But overall, it's going to train you in righteousness. What's righteousness like? I don't know what it's like. If I try to figure it out on my own, I don't know what it's like. If I have my own idea of righteousness, I'm going to mess it up. I'm going to be more like these people in the top paragraph. But Scripture is what trains you for righteousness. Scripture po- provides the guardrails to keep you on the path, without which you'd be going off cliffs left and right. Okay? All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable to teach you, to reprove you, to correct you, to train you in righteousness for what? Here's the ultimate purpose. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So why does it teach us? And why does it prove us? And why does it correct us? And why does it train us? It does all that to equip you, to equip you. In the Greek, twice. So ESV says complete equipped. It doesn't sound redundant, but it's fully equipped, equipped, outfitted. You're not ready for your journey until you've got your backpack and your fire kit and your walking stick and your sunscreen, right? You need to be ready for that journey. Scripture equips you to be ready for that journey without scripture you're not ready you're going to die of dehydration you're going to get lost no scripture provides the compass it provides the topographical map it provides everything that you need the tent the sleeping bag right it outfits you it equips you with the stuff that you need to get out there and live the life you're supposed to live what messes us up is when we bypass scripture we think we've got it and then we try to live the christian life and that's how we end up like this top paragraph Because that's what these guys are trying to do. They're trying to figure out truth on their own. They're trying to read stuff and learn stuff and listen to fancy oratorical speeches by people and they're just not getting power. But he's telling Timothy, the key is the sacred writings. The key is God's breathed out Scripture that will profit you. Nothing else is going to profit you that way. Scripture does that. To equip you and complete you for what? Every good work. Every good work. So there's Paul busting up the, com- the compartmentalization that we do, right? The Bible is good for how to run a church. The Bible is good for, you know, theology. But I need something for the rest of life. How many of us have studied what Scripture has to say about certain things in our lives that we normally wouldn't associate with church? We normally don't. We listen to talk shows. We listen to radio shows. We watch television shows. We watch documentaries. Maybe we read history books. We talk to our parents. How was it? How was Dad? How did Dad do it? What was he like? Let me let that inform my life. None of those things are bad. But when we're low on Scripture and high on all that other stuff, That's a dangerous path because that other stuff can't equip you. It can't make you whole. It can't give you the power you need for change. So we want to change. We want to live lives that are renewed and powerful. We want to break out of these things that maybe some of us are addicted to. We're addicted to our own conceit. I mean, look at verse 3. You feel like your life is without self-control? You keep trying to convince yourself that you're in control. You're really not in control. And you're living a life of a lack of self-control. Paul's saying the antidote to that is Scripture. Scripture. Accountability partners are great. You know, a New Year's resolution, that's cool. You know, um, join a Facebook group that are all struggling with the same thing. That's helpful. But those things aren't power for change. Power for change comes from Scripture that equips you. So it's that the man of God will be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, some people say, hey, man of God there means pastor. Man of God there means prophet. Man of God means someone who's teaching. That's probably true. That's probably true. But check this out. He goes over chapter 4. So the man of God is Timothy. And he's saying, Timothy, you're going to study Scripture. Scripture is going to equip you. To give you everything that you need to be the man of God. Every good work that you can do, Scripture is going to equip you to do that. And then what does he want him to do at the top of chapter 4? I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Preach the word, Timothy. Don't go up there and give your thoughts, your blog, an article that you read. Preach the word. Why? You need to be ready in season and out of season to reprove, rebuke. Those are similar words. We just saw that, right? Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So here's my point to you. The man of God, sure, that probably means for the minister. The minister needs to spend time in the Word of God, allow those sacred writings to change the man of God, that's going to give the word but why does god want him to do that so he could stand up in a pulpit and preach scripture for what for reproof for rebuke for exhortation see the same things that happen to the minister are now going to happen to the people if the minister speaks what's there and not something else some of you one day you might move away you don't have cfc you got to find your new church find a church where the pastor preaches what's here and not just some fancy stuff, right? Preach the word, Timothy, because if you don't preach the word, you're going to have a congregation like the first paragraph, paragraph—that a form of godliness and no power to change. We wonder why these huge mega churches, they're so big, and the pastors aren't preaching the Bible. Even when they say, everybody pick up your Bible, this is God's word for my life, blah, 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 and then puts it down and never goes back to it why are those churches so big wouldn't people it says they don't last long sure because the front door is so big all the people bleeding out the back door don't worry about it so many people are coming in and buying this garbage it stays big but we don't want to be in that trap if we're stuck in these kind of things we're disobedient to our parents and if you're too quick to elbow your kid sitting next to you, the comma before that, abusive. how do you wield your authority? Do you sh your kids, or do you just want rules followed? Don't be abusive, don't be disobedient to your parents. But the news flash is that you can't not be abusive, you can't not be too neglectful as a parent. You can't not be you can't be an obedient child with your parents in your house power of the word to change you. The scripture is breathed out by God to profit you so you don't stay stuck in this stuff. That's why it's there. So we can trust the word of God to equip us thoroughly for every good work. What's been on my heart lately is I think a lack of trust in the Bible to give us what we need for life. I think of a story I, I read recently. Uh, some of you remember back in the early 2000s, you might have looked at your one of your dollar bills and it was signed, Paul O'Neill. I only recognize it because it's spelled like my name, and I'm like, cool, you know. Well, Paul O'Neill, before he worked at Washington with George Bush, He was the president and CEO of Alcoa, uh, which was uh, the the biggest aluminum company in in the world. Now, the founder of that aluminum company, over a century ago, invented the way to smelt aluminum, okay? Invented the way to do it, and now they're doing Coke cans. Every time you open a Hershey Kiss wrapper, that was Alcoa. Satellites up in space, the bolts that hold them together, you can thank Alcoa for that. They're the masters of aluminum, based in Pittsburgh. But things were uh, getting rocky. You know, the company was bleeding, losing employees, investors were backing out, just mistake, mistake after mistake, misstep after misstep. And so one in uh, 1987, Wall Street investors, uh, uh, strategists, they're all gathering in this uh, room in Manhattan to hear the announcement of their new CEO. And out comes Paul O'Neill. Most people don't know who he is. He used to be a government bureaucrat. They're thinking, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. Why is this guy here? Well, maybe he's got something to say. He comes out in his power tie and his suit with pinstripes and he starts his speech. I want to talk to you today about worker safety. He goes on for whatever, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, on worker safety regulations, wearing your hats, calling OSHA, you know, all these different things. And they're like, where? Where's the talk about profit margins and losses and hiring and market capitalization? Where's all the normal stuff that you would think a new CEO is going to drum up? Hey guys, don't worry about it. I know everyone else failed, but I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. We're going to talk about synergy and win-win situations. We're going to talk about China. Okay, all this different stuff. He didn't do any of that. He just talked about worker safety. He said, our company is pretty safe, but it needs to be safer. I want, I want to get us to the point where we have zero injuries all year long. Then he stopped and said, I want you to consider these exits. <laughs> he starts implementing safety measures in the middle of a speech. Now People are stampeding out of the doors, calling calling their clients and telling them, hey, pull out, man. They just hired this weird hippie and... You know, and he's just talking about safety and hard hats and and painting rails yellow and stuff. And he does not know what he's doing. Get out. But the ones that stayed invested. Made money. Why? Because Paul O'Neill had one thing to focus on. He would go to the company for the employees, go to the managers and all the other people working for him and talk about safety, safety, safety anything unsafe, we're going to fix it. I don't want to hear any more injuries. I don't want to hear about people dying. None of that. If there's an injury and you don't report, you're immediately fired. doesn't matter how successful you've been. You're fired on the spot. And the culture of the company started to change. These employees were pulling over and see guys working hard hat or something. They would pull over, get out of the car and just talk to these people. Hey, that's not safe, dude. And get back in the car and go home. It has nothing to do with it. But just safety became so ingrained in them. They just thought about safety all the time. They didn't think about numbers or profits. They thought about safety. When he retired in the early 2000s, the net income for the company uh, quintupled. Is that a word? Right? Five times the net income of when he started. And they became one of the safest companies to work for in the world. How do they get the profits? By focusing just on safety. Because safety, you would think, has nothing to do with profits. That's the problem. We're like, ah, safety schmafety. Safety is too slow. Wait, 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 I gotta put my harness on. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Hey man, we're just fixing this one little knob. We just gotta turn the knob. No, 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 no. Safety, you're putting it, there's rails, you need extra stuff. Okay? hats oh i forgot my hat okay hold on everybody time out tom forgot his hat he's got to go back to the truck get his hat put it on. doesn't want to get fired goes back we're wasting time right no, Don't want to waste time when tom goes over there the arm of the robot thing turns and hits him in the head he dies they lost an employee a whole day behind a week behind they got to find a new guy to replace him that's waste time so what initially looked like something irrelevant was so basic and so core they were missing it and safety related to everything in that company now i'm not a ceo and that's probably the longest i've ever talked about anything business related like that in a sermon <laughs> but when i read that i thought man that's how we are at church sometimes yeah yeah, yeah, yeah bible bible do your devotions every day takes too long i gotta get to work Read your Bible, ah, too confusing, I get it, I get it. Well, I have the Sunday sermon. And the Bible becomes something that we we just kind of relegate it to to something that is only relevant for very small portions in our lives. But the Bible is relevant to everything. That's why Paul says the Bible will profit you and equip you for some good works, a couple good works, every, every good work. So how about your marriage? How much Bible is involved in your marriage? If it's going to be healthy, if it's going to be powerful, if it's going to display the gospel like it should, you got to get the Bible in there. Spend time with your spouse. Talk to each other about what you're reading, what you're learning. You're struggling with your kids. They're disobedient. And then the more they're disobedient, the more abusive you become. But the more abusive you become, the more they rebel. How do you break this cycle? Well, not a form of godliness. We saw that. How do you break the cycle? Get the Bible in there. Do you talk with kids about the Bible? How much do they understand about theology? When they go off to college and the atheist professor starts putting on the chalkboard all his arguments as to why God doesn't exist or if he exists, he's a jerk. Do they know the Bible? We've got to do that for them. Maybe you're not married in here. You're single. Is the Bible involved in what you think about dating? Or do you date like the world dates? Get the Bible in there. You don't want to date like they date. Let the Bible inform how you think about preparing for marriage. Maybe you're in here. You're not out of high school yet. The Bible seems really irrelevant. Most of us, you're not going to high school like a Christian school. You know, there's not a Bible class. And you're seeing that math is relevant for certain things and English lit, that's relevant for certain things. Uh, Psychology, developmental psych, abnormal psych, whatever you're taking, that's relevant for certain things. But then the Bible, you go to church and it's just one one of those other subjects. You know, that's relevant for like doctrine stuff. But what what I'm telling you, what Paul is telling Timothy here, Is it's not like those other subjects. This affects everything career, home life, friendships, relationships, your own state of health, depression, sadness, grief, how you deal with loss, how you deal with suffering, how you deal with bullying, how you deal with witnessing bullying when someone's bullying someone else. What are you supposed to do? What's your responsibility there? If we're not transformed by Scripture, we'll do things just the way we feel like it. And when we do that, we live a dangerous life where we start diverging uh, our our own selves, our church life and then the everything else life, that duality that kills. So my encouragement to you is to find the power for change, changing your life, changing your marriage, changing your relationships, changing your parenting, your career. In the Bible, I want to start hearing that the first thing we did when we started having problems is we consulted Scripture, not called 1-800-FREE-Counselor. Not first thing I did was go on my Facebook page to ask friends what they think or go into a special group or or. Tweet it or research hashtags to see what people are saying about it. All those things are good. All those things are good. But Scripture has to play the prominent role, the primary role, so that you know when friends give you advice, what's the good advice and what's the bad advice? This becomes the filter. Yes, I see what's happening in those guys' lives. They're doing it right because that's what Scripture says. Now, that's actually bad advice because that's not what Scripture says. Let's not leave this behind like, yeah, 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 that got me saved. I want to, it's time to do other stuff now, but let's become students of the Bible, and for many of us, we're intimidated, I don't know where to start, turn to Matthew, maybe, I don't know exactly where it is, it's upside down, I don't know, it's somewhere, right, talk to me, talk to one of the elders here, someone on the worship team, there's so many people here that can just get you going, take a, a gospel like the gospel of John, and just read the first paragraph, and dwell on that for a little while. Now, after dwelling on that for a little while, at some point, maybe the next day, read the second paragraph. It's not rocket science. You've got to read it, expose yourself to it, so that you can experience true power for godliness and change in your life. I want to ask the worship team to come up.